Cody. <laughs> I, I feel like you've been influenced by Timbo's voice, the Timbo voice. No, man. Ever since the earthquake, this is how I talk. <laughs> is it going to affect the podcast? No, I think people get used to it. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, yeah. My I mean, dog people... is weirded out. All right. So in this episode, we are talking to John Woodbury. That's right. John Woodbury. John Woodbury just became the executive director of Iron Dog, the longest snow machine race in the entire world. And that follows the Iditarod Trail. Oh, and you know, this will probably piss off some of our Alaskans, but for anyone that's tuning in from the lower 48 or around the world, when we say snow machine, we mean snowmobile. You know what you did though in the beginning of this? Is you accidentally said snowmobile. It's not an accident. It wasn't an accident? It was not an accident, no. Okay, you did it on purpose. I mean... You know, you, you did have a good justification, though, and that was your work with Tailgate has... Um, you've had to talk to a lot of sponsors down in the States. And yeah, when you say industry. Snow Machine, I remember the first time I ever said Snow Machine was... I think maybe I was living in Mammoth Lakes, California, and I said Snow Machine, and the person that I had said it to didn't understand what I said. And they're like, what do, what do you mean? What do you mean like a snow machine? And they thought I meant like a cat, like a up on a ski resort. You know, one of those, those cat that, that kind of groom the trails. Yeah, no. Yeah. Or, um, or also the snow making machines. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, it's like a cause, snow machine. Cause the rest of the world calls it snowmobile. Right. And so it's kind of like, you know how America we like, um, we use like inches and feet. Yeah. But the rest of the world's metric. Yeah but we think like they're wrong. Like Alaska <laughs> is like the American version of that when it comes to like snow machine. They're like, oh, how could you call it a snowmobile? And it's yeah. like, well, when I talk to you, when I talk to people in Alaska, I call it a snow machine. Anywhere else I call it a snowmobile and it's not that big of a deal. You know, I've also heard it called a snow go. Yeah, that's more of like the, uh, that's the village terminology. Yeah, the Alaska native Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They call it snow go, which is pretty awesome. Yeah, I, think. I love yeah. it. I, I, I cool. think uh, a lot of my friends, um, a lot of my snow machine buddies have adopted that. They go, it's time to go snow going. Yep, exactly. Grab the snow go. You know, there is a universal term, and it is sled. Yep. And that is used across the board. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we could just say sled, but I, I've, I, I grew up with snow machine. Me too. You know, I wonder if... Um, Canadians say snow machine or do they say snowmobile? I think they just say ski do. <laughs> oh, they do? Okay. Well, because that's ski is from Canada. So. Okay. <laughs> Take the old ski do out, eh? Hey. <laughs> so, yeah, John Woodbury is actually, a, he was kind of an adventure journalist as well, correct? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. For and like he, Alaskan like adventure. So, yeah, he was an adventure journalist. Um, he, he was one of the founders of Coast Magazine, which is a magazine that you can kind of pick up for free around Anchorage. All right, so in every episode, we have to give a shout out to Trina Duber and Seward Brewing Company. Whoop, whoop. I wonder if that should just be like a mainstay now, the whoop, whoop. I know. <laughs> we, we should include that in the, uh, in the rewards for the company man tier on Patreon. Yeah. You'll get a whoop, whoop. A whoop, whoop. <laughs> That's weird. Uh, you know... What's cool too is we've gotten uh, we've gotten a few more Patreons over uh, the past like ten days. Patrons, are, oh yeah, Patrons for our Patreon. We recently sat down and kind of uh, you know did a little uh, strategic financial planning, and we've gotten almost all of our equipment now that we need to do mobile recording. Yeah, 
And that's kind of a cool milestone because we've got our studio as far as like our mobile studio. We don't have walls yet. Yeah, we're not confined to a certain area. Yep. And and we'll also be probably doing some remote recording for our upcoming Earthquake episode. Yeah. So we will be uh, kind of discussing that. And a real quick a shout out to everyone here in South Central Alaska for kind of getting through that major natural disaster. And like... Yeah. How was your earthquake? How was my earthquake? It was pretty scary. Yeah. I mean, I didn't even make it like down to my first floor. And I thought like the house was coming down around me. I actually learned a lot about earthquakes over yeah. the past week. I think we all did. I know. <laughs> and I also learned a lot about who we are as Alaskans. Um, we got sturdy buildings. We've got awesome road crews. I mean, 72 hours or something to, to fix some of these collapsed roads. What I think might be interesting or what I think is probably more scary than interesting is if, if this one only shook for seconds and it did the damage that it did, what would happen in 2018 if we had a 1964 level earthquake? And I don't know if we are any more... Uh, prepared structurally than they were back then. Oh, we are prepared more structurally. You think so? Oh, yeah. We have all types of codes now and stuff. I mean, that's some of the things I've been reading, <clears throat> excuse me, since uh, since this happened. So it's so, like, like how they've had to update our building codes. And that's why there was so much damage in Eagle River, uh -huh. the town outside of Anchorage, is because they don't have to adhere to some of those codes. Okay, okay. Yeah. So we are actually really like our engineers... And our codes are something that, like, allowed us to get through this. Maybe we should get an engineer on here. Uh, yeah, maybe we should. Yeah. Okay, well, let's... Maybe we will. <laughs> maybe we will. Let's, let's get into this then. John Woodbury. Word up. Mike is hot. Mike's hot? Mike's hot. Is it recording? It's recording. That's what that means, dude. Crude conversations. Listen more than you talk. Go to work. All right, John. Welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Right on. You're you're a busy guy. I am. Squeeze <laughs> in a few minutes here and there. What's it like to be the new executive director of Iron Dog? Well, I think I've been so darn busy. I haven't had a chance to really reflect on it on what it is. But um, uh, actually, that's a joke. Yeah, it's it's amazing. You know, the best part about it is uh, it's something new. I'm surrounded by amazing people. I mean, the board of directors. There's uh, quite a few new people on the board, and they're so energetic. They're so involved. They uh, they uh, keep me on my toes. I want to say they make my life easier, but uh, just trying to keep up with them, it's another race that I'm in. But I like it. I really I, I uh, am proud to be associated with the Iron Dog. And so what, what was the criteria to become the executive director? Oh, I, I really wasn't privy to what their uh, selection process was. Um, I just kind of dropped a comment to one of the board members and uh, I think he kind of picked it up and ran with it. I'm glad that I have this new job. I was satisfied with what I was doing before and uh, I actually anticipated a nice mellow winter full of skiing and riding and going up to my cabin and uh, I'm probably not going to see any of that because I'll be <laughs> so busy but uh, I'm not sure what their criteria was. I know that they uh, we're interested in me because I've been a lifelong Alaskan and I've um, been familiar with the race, you know, basically since 1984 when it started. And um, 
I followed it for many, many years as a journalist for Snow Rider magazine and for the Anchorage Times and rural newspapers and stuff. So I've really seen the race from a, you know an above-average spectator's eyes, uh, but I've never been behind the curtain. And it's uh, intimidating and uh, rewarding at the same time. You know. So what's that like to go from someone who's obviously been following it, covering it as a journalist, and, you know, to now it's your responsibility, it's survival. Because you were connected to it prior to this. Oh, yeah. It's it's interesting. I mean, it is, you know, the equivalent of uh, chasing the most interesting story, finding the most daring and colorful individual to not retreating, but uh, moving to the side and trying to approach a race so it goes off in the safest manner possible. And so it's almost, uh, you know, an opposition between getting the sexiest story and now making sure that I'm a good steward of safety and uh, trying to protect all these daring young men and women. Yeah, you you know, that's interesting because I've seen like uh, like heli guides who also try and be photographers. And it's like those are kind of two competing things, you know, because one's supposed to be looking for safety and the other one is kind of like pushing to get like the baddest shot, right? And so that's as a journalist, you were kind of like, what's the craziest, gnarliest story I could tell? That's it. And now you're like, I don't, I, under my watch, I don't know if I want there to be any crazy stories. <laughs> It'll be number gray 15 and everything will be cool. Yep. <laughs> so for the people who don't know what Iron Dog is, could you explain it to us? Oh, sure. Uh, well, it's the world's longest, toughest snowmobile race is how it's built. And, uh, Uh, Basically, it has a team of two riders who leave either Anchorage or this year we're leaving Big Lake, and they head up the trail. The simplest overview is they leave Big Lake, they go as fast as they possibly can, taking a certain amount of checkpoints, burning a whole lot of fuel and time. Uh, They wind up in Nome, they stay there for about 30 hours or so, turn back around, go back down the coast, hook east to the uh, town of Fairbanks up the Yukon River, and... Really, the riding time is, you know, 30-something to 60-something hours, uh, but it takes uh, about six days to do that. So that's like the 30,000-foot view. There's a whole, there's a story a mile. There's an injury, a potential injury a mile. It's terrifying. I've been up the trail a couple times as a media person on the media pool, and uh, I don't know how they do it. These guys are going 90 miles an hour, you know, across some of the most rugged terrain in Alaska. And uh, they're just so good. It looks like they're going smooth. Me, I'm whimpering in my helmet the whole way <laughs> up. You know? And it's, it's, it's the Iditarod Trail, is that correct? It is, yeah. We, use, uh, we follow most of the Iditarod Trail, depends on which route they're using, south or north. Uh, we go through uh, Ptarmigan Pass, and they take a little variation there near Pontilla, but in general, yes, it's the Iditarod. Well, I mean, there's got to be some differences because these guys are on snowmobiles versus, you know, dogs, right? So there's probably some things to take into account there. Yeah. Uh, some of the some of the trails, you know, aren't as safe as they could be for snow machines and vice versa. And we call them snow machines, man. We call them snow machines. I know. Sorry. <laughs> I, 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 uh, you do too. What was that all about? Snowmobile? Oh, wow. Well, I actually, I work... Um, with the uh, lower 48 in winter sports, kind of, and, right. and uh, with the with the industry as well. Right. And so I got kind of used to saying uh, snowmobile. A lot of times I'll be like snowmobile, snow sure. machine, yeah, yeah. and I just say them both. There you go. Cover um, your bases. But uh, what yeah, do you, what I do you don't do? know. What's your deal with the industry? 
Um, oh, so you ever heard of Tailgate Alaska? Uh, I have heard yeah, of Tailgate so Alaska. Yeah, so I'm uh, the new director of oh, that. Oh, are you? Okay. Yep. Oh, you took over for Mark, right? Mark, exactly. Oh, great, yep. yeah. You know, I've never been there. I've always wanted to go. I heard it's an awesome thing. I'm usually conflicted by getting back to work and doing the Arctic Man thing. And uh, Yeah, it's awesome. Can't wait to get down there. Maybe this is the year, huh? Yeah, it'd be awesome. Right. That'd be great, to, great yeah. to have you, you All know. Right. So, I mean, I can definitely relate to some of your challenges sure. here that you are facing with right. the Iron, Iron Dog. You know, yeah. it'd be good to... Uh, to get to get into those a little bit, but I just I want to know a little bit more about this race because mm-hmm. everything I've heard it just seems so gnarly and like it's got it you know how many miles is it? Uh, I think the actual mileage is two thousand thirty one, basically two thousand. Depends on if you get lost, and it's about two thousand fifty. But uh, <laughs> unless you get lost, what does that look like? Oh uh, well, you know I've been lost a few times. It's terrifying. <laughs> I mean, we were on a when we were part of this ambassador class with the National Guard, this was like 2011, we left uh, McGrath in the morning, and uh, we're cruising along. It's a respectable pace, but 2011 was a really snowy year, and, man, I was fortunate to have the longest track on there, which was really only a 141, and it started snowing. We had feet and feet of snow. My GPS conked out, and so you could kind of ride by Braille. There was an old mounded snow machine track and the only way you could know that you were on it is if you could feel it you'd let your ski dive down a couple feet in the snow and you'd bump against it and then you kind of keep going and we had a few start and stops in pitch black ground blizzard you know i mean mentally it was it was exhausting you know and you're trying to be cool because you're with a bunch of burly men and you don't want to lose <laughs> your you know you want to squeal in your helmet but uh it's intimidating because really you're kind of out there by yourself in the middle of nowhere so- What's some of the terrain that people are going to be riding on? Because I know my, my buddy's raced in it. He told me that he drove on the ocean. You can drive on the ocean, and it may not be frozen. My brother went up. Uh, he raced in 2012 one year with a guy named Scotty Miller. They were on skidoos, and they were heading out from Unilakleet and heading over to Shaktulik. And they didn't keep as close to the shore as they should have. And Scotty got a little outside, and he lost a sled. I mean, they... His sled went to the bottom of the ocean. And, where did uh, where did Scotty go? Scotty jumped off about ten feet before he uh, hit the water, and then uh, nice they were trying. Scotty. They were holding onto the sled. They were holding onto the sled, and the waves were lapping over, filling up the tub, and they just had to release it. And they doubled up and they turned around and they just made it back onto the hard ice because the the ice they were on broke off, and so they had to kind of skip the water doing double, you know. And yeah, they made it back alive, but. Uh, that's was, lucky. Oh, lucky. Absolutely. So, There's so a lot of those it, moments up there. What's it like being so far removed from Western civilization and something like that happens? I mean, what do you what do you do? You just go prepared or do you shoot a flare or what? Well, I mean, flares are a required part of the safety kit and so I think it all begins on, you know, how much metal, you know, what are you made out of? You know, are you that kind of person cuz some people just shouldn't do this race, you know. Uh, I'm one of them. I will not race this race. It scares the hell out of me, you know. How do you vet people that are going to enter uh, and make sure you get someone that shouldn't? Well, so that's a really good question. There really is no qualifier here. I think that the people who want to race this race for bravado are easily weeded out. Um, I think that the racers who enter this race are probably some of the toughest athletes. They are probably some of the some of the you know, strongest people, men and women, mentally and physically. I mean, they're really, really solid people. 
you just it's not a race that you can walk into you think you can walk into it but you're not you're not going to get very far it's it's hard to go i mean the first stretch of the trail like 77 miles of squintna that's you know you rattle your fillings out because the trail is so rough but i think the trail decides who rides it i mean i don't think you decide you're just going to ride that trail mm-hmm. or race that trail we have a trail class where you can ride that trail and it's great i recommend everybody do that because you can go 10 miles an hour while those guys are going 50 or you can go 90 down the yukon and those guys are going 110 but you still get a real good taste and, and the idea is that you've got to support infrastructure along the way so that you could do it recreationally absolutely yeah. and you know so the crucial thing there is we're again surrounded by awesome people we have 23 different towns and villages and cities that we go through these checkpoints are full of awesome folks so yeah if i get broke down in the middle of nowhere i have to be self-reliant i have to just calm down and deal with it that may mean crawling in my bivy sack you know but really what's going to happen is someone some bold kind-hearted person from a village or a town is going to ride out and save your ass and bring you back to town and some uh, some people have airplanes that follow them like air support correct there's quite a few you know there's a there are airplanes associated with the Iron Dog. There's no official association, but uh, those guys are some of the, you know, safest, most accomplished pilots. I spent maybe six or seven years covering the race through the air, too. The trail's really, uh, really smooth at 500 feet up. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> it's the best way to do it. <laughs> yeah. You know? And the pilots are just amazing, amazing people. So you mentioned these these villages that the, the snow machines have to, have to pass through. Mm-hmm. How do these villages... Or what do they think about the race? Well, you know, uh, it's kind of cool. I mean, certainly uh, we have a lot of uh, a lot of ways, a long ways to go to be as popular as Iditarod, which is an awesome event. You know, Mark, he's a friend of mine. These are really good partners to be in the middle of nowhere with. You know, we share a lot of similar uh, uh, goals. But uh, uh, it's great. I mean, you come into every single town, you know, and there's a lineup of people to greet you. You know, you go into McGrath, those guys rolling there late at night, anywhere, you know, from 10 o'clock to 3 a.m., depending how much dirt is on the trail by the Buffalo Tunnels. But uh, you roll into town, there's people up. They're greeting you, they're clapping you, they're, you know, clapping at you. They want your autograph. I mean, they really are kind of a rock star when you roll into these towns. You can see these young guys and gals that are aspiring to be a pro-class iron dog racer. So the racers have a responsibility not only to their sponsors and to their personal goals but they really are ambassadors for the sport and they're an ambassador for the state too how many how many villages does the iron dog race travel through uh villages by definition i'm not sure but we go through 23 different communities cities communities, towns. sure yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. uh but they're awesome i mean you know Nome's a great time it's a halfway point you know elam gullivan safety white mountain koyak all these places are full of amazing people the one commonality on every checkpoint is everybody wants to help. Everybody wants to participate. It's just, you know, there's fresh moose stew on the crock pot. You know, there's, there's monster drinks there waiting for you. And it's great. It is a homecoming every time you go into a checkpoint. The hardest thing to do is leave those checkpoints. But, you know, you got to punch the clock and roll on. So, you know, I read that you've been a part of it since it started back in 1984, it was? Mm-hmm. It's older than I am. I was born in 85. <laughs> oh, yeah, older than I am, too. It's older than you are. <laughs> so what was, what was it like back then versus what it's like now? Uh, well, uh, I, think those, I think those guys are, uh, I think those guys are, uh, they were really tough. 
because I mean, the technology we have right now with the sleds, uh, it's amazing. You know, I mean, I think that it's an asset and a detraction that anybody can hop on a sled and go just about anywhere, which creates a real liability sometimes in the backcountry because used to be you would earn your stripes before you went up on those cornices or up in those valleys or skipping across that water or driving across dirt. But um, those guys were tough. I mean, they had springs on the front seat. Their suspension consisted of four inches of foam. You know, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but those were those were Neanderthals. They were riding Neanderthal sleds, and now we're on these George Jetson wonder rides, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, the technology on these things has yeah. just leaps and bounds forward. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't, I mean, yeah, those guys were probably pretty tough, man. That's They're all tough. I can... Well, with, with snow machine technology now, you're seeing riders being able to get to peaks of mountains that otherwise only helis would be able to get to in the past. True. Poor man's helicopter. We're seeing it right here at Tailgate. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Yep. I mean, it's it's really, yeah, the, the, the snowmo- snow machine, snowmobile, right. has... um. <laughs> has really become like the premier way to access the backcountry for skiers and snowboarders, you know, mm-hmm. that want to get into some serious places here in Alaska for sure. Yep. I mean, it really has opened it up. And, you know, it's important that people respect where they're going with snow machines. You know, everybody is using all that fun snow out there. So we got to respect that. We got to protect our access. And that's by being good stewards of the forest or good stewards of the land. And it's being courteous to every other user. So, you know... It has brought joy to a bigger group of people. Uh, it's very important to remember that we need to have the responsibility that goes with all that access. So. Yeah, and I think I've seen a change in kind of like uh, snow machiners actually, where they're a lot more these days. They're a lot more in tune with like being kind of the stewards of the environment mm-hmm. and being more um, aware that there's other types of users. And I, I think that's something that was kind of missing in a previous generation. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think of like kind of the sled neck generation. Hey, those guys were cool. We just get rid of the broke hands, we'll be all right. <laughs> totally, man. And, and I, I get that, but I feel mm. like, I almost feel like the sled neck is dead now. Mm. You know, kind of like it's it's just really changed. Are you, are you talking about the, uh, are you using the word sled neck in the sense of uh, kind of destructive? Yeah, the like racing stripe, you know, like kind of bro bra, um, you know, anti-environment. And it's still there a little bit, but I, I totally noticed it in like the older snow machiner versus the younger, mm-hmm. I think. And I don't know why it's that an is. an evolution. I mean, it was, you know, access and rights and cooperative enjoyment in Alaska's backcountry. It's evolve or die. And I speak to both groups when I say that, you know, because just as you say, there were some bros out there that were probably, you know, reckless and noisy and pompous. And I know who you're talking about. Hell, I was probably one of them. But uh, every, everybody has to be, they need to base their first step on the snow in respectfulness. And that's with your fun, that's with their fun. No one's fun is more important. It's just fun. There should, we should quit slicing the pie so thin on that stuff. So, Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I was going to bust this out later, but I think this is uh, as good a time as any. This survey, this Iron Dog survey, this moving forward survey, I went ahead and printed it out. Absolutely. That's some nuggets in there. (laughs) One of the the questions on here, what does Iron Dog mean to you? And I think that when we're talking about how we interact with the environment and how that has changed, I think that maybe what's happening is we're a little bit more aware of our impact on society. Mm -hmm. 
yeah. and not society, but uh, our impact on the environment, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe have you seen the answers to these these questions? I've read every one. I You've read not, every one. I was not involved in formulating the questions, which I thought the board members and the previous executive directors did a good job with. I've read every answer. And I tell you what, I've called, I haven't called as many people as I need to. It's just simply a matter of finding the time right now. But uh, there's some good stuff. I mean, there's some stinkers in there, but there's some, you render it down to the good comments and, and I'm impressed. What's something that, that maybe stuck out to you about uh, maybe the continuity of what Iron Dog means to people? Well, it's interesting because uh, while there were certain times where people could identify the region or the town or where they're from, uh, it's cool to see that many of the comments from the rural folks are, you know, this is my goal, you know, my dad raced this, or this is what I aspire to. It's, it's you, Are there a lot cool. of rural Alaskans that enter the race? Uh, there have been. I mean, we've had years where there's been, you know, four or five teams, which is pretty good. I mean, all the way from, you know, Vyavik to Bethel. There's some Bethel guys racing here now. And uh, it kind of goes in ebbs and flow. You know, somewhere sometimes we get a lot of people from America. Sometimes we get a lot of people from rural Alaska. Most of our uh, racer population is from Fairbanks and the Valley and Anchorage. But it's great, though. We want more rural riders. We want more folks from lower 48. Has climate change affected the, the route at all? Oh, wow. Uh, I think that it is a new course every year. Uh, as far as long-term impacts, I haven't been on the course every single year. Um, I don't think we've had to reroute the course because of climate change or weather patterns. Because decades ago, there was dirt in the Buffalo tunnels outside of Rhone. Decades ago, there were feet of snow in that area, you know, and I've been in both situations, but, uh, so I don't know, cause we go in the winter and everything's frozen and we just don't see the erosion that may or may not be occurring. But, uh, you know, is that a question? Is there climate change happening? I am a believer of that. I, but I don't see that affecting the race at all. Well, I mean, in 2015, I believe was a year that it was like, they had, I, someone told me that it was like 500 miles to Ruby and there was almost like no snow. People were packing ice on their tunnels to, okay, to not that, overheat. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and so I have uh, – so I think you mean outside of Rhone and going to McGrath and Nikolai, that area right there, uh, it was dirt. Yeah. We were flying over there. I was with a good friend of mine and board member, Keith Modernock. We were in his plane, and we're zipping over. And we would swoop down so I'd get videos and photos of the racers. And the way that we would pick them out that particular year was we would look for the dust clouds. And we'd zero in on the dust clouds, and then there'd be a snow machine <laughs> in front of it. And it was crazy. You, you know what's kind of crazy is you look at, like, uh, the snow machine crowd, and, you know, they're kind of seeing the effects of climate change and all this stuff right in front of them, yet a lot of that demographic, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm just stereotyping here, but a lot of the snow machine crowd seems to be, like, people who are, like, Oh, climate change isn't real, or at least they don't think it's human caused. I mean, what are what are your? Do you see that? And I think there is a spectrum of personalities and beliefs, just like any other group. Personally, I've lived here fifty three years. Uh, I was shorter then, but the snow seemed deeper. <laughs> <laughs> I don't go out in winter as much as I used to. Um, 
But it seems to me that in the 53 years, the winters have been shorter and wetter, much to my dismay, because I'm a winter person and I love it. So, yeah, whatever's happening, uh, I'm just hopeful that we still have a bunch of snow this year. Yeah, totally. I, I know what you mean. I mean, even for tailgate, we've been running into problems mm-hmm. with the way the weather's mm-hmm. been out there. Yeah. You know, and it's like when, when you're an industry that depends on weather. Mm-hmm. It's a serious thing. And even when you're a recreational rider and you depend on this for what you're doing, what you love, you know, we're the ones on the front lines of what's happening. Absolutely. Well, that's why you have people like Jeremy Jones who has uh, Protect Our Winners. Mm -hmm. Great program. Yeah. I know. It's good to have spokesmen like that, you know. Regardless of what everybody's belief is, you know, there's not a damn thing wrong with trying to protect our environment for our future generations. In whatever level you want to embrace that, I think it's very important. Because the worst that could happen is we protect our environment and our future. Uh, So, you know, I hope more people kind of follow his lead. It would be great to have uh, an ambassador like that in the the snow machine industry. And there probably are, I'm just unaware. I think Protect Our Winners is pretty serious about kind of reaching out to the snow Absolutely. machine industry and yeah. kind of that de- demographic mm-hmm. and crowd too. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so as far as the board goes for Iron Dog, I read that there are four new board members. Sure. Is that is that true <laughs> or did I, am, am I incorrect? Hey, they're all new to me. All okay, right. they're all okay. So, um, I mean, one thing that I, I, I have come across a few times, is there any new innovative ideas, you know, to help keep this going? Oh, yeah. One, I mean, to be clear, the rumors of Iron Dog's demise have been greatly exaggerated. So to answer your question, I have a bucket in the office. And when people start talking about 2020, which is going to be an awesome year, I think, because, you know, I've, I've been at this job since October 1st, and it's been full throttle all the way. And it's, you know, I thought I lost sleep when I would cover the race. Well, now I'm like, can't wait until the race starts so I can get some sleep. I'm being facetious, <laughs> but, you know, it's been a very busy month and whatever. So, yeah, we have a bucket in the office. Uh, I work with a gal named Sarah Miller, and we were just laughing about it tonight. And people who start talking about the ideas of let's do this, let's change this, let's go there, you know, man on the moon ideas are all great. They're all grandiose, you know, no ideas without people or money. So, uh, and if it's something that's going to kind of occlude the immediacy, the priority list, we tell them to throw that, that idea in the bucket, you know? Um, so crazy ideas go in the bucket. No, 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 no. The ones, the ones that are actually possible and actually target. Oh, it's the possibility bucket. Possibility bucket. Yeah. And, but these are the reality is in 2019, you know, we're going to put on a safe, financially soluble race, and then we're going to rip the doors off this thing and we have some really good ideas i'd like to go into them but uh you know I wanna... starting with the fundamentals and growing from there there we go all right so is that is that where we're at right now with 2019 is yeah. like let's just yeah. get ourselves a solid foundation yeah, and then because you know i've had a lot of people be like well ask them what they're going to do differently what are mm-hmm. they going to do new yeah. you know and i think that uh I think we're going to continue the solid Iron Dog traditions. We're going to make some tweaks here and there for this race because we need to and because we have to. That's a combination of both those issues. Uh, Starting March 1st, we're going to dump that bucket out, and we're going to render those ideas down into some pretty exciting, workable plans. And, And it's great. You know, I mean, everybody has ideas about the Iron Dog. I welcome every single one of them, and I can't wait to pull them out of the bucket on March 1st, you know. 
right now we're hustling for sponsors. We've got a great cadre of sponsors right now. I just had some amazing volunteers walk in the office today. There's like literally a small army of volunteers. It's what it takes, you know. And uh, But the new board members, getting back to the new board members, yeah, there's at least four new board members. We're considering a few more. It's a mix between very, very busy men and women and uh, a, obtaining a quorum. Uh, so we have to be, you know, cognizant of that. We don't want to get so many people. We want all the help and advice we can get, but uh, we've got to make sure we can, uh, you know, process it correctly according to Robert's rules and the decorum that it allows but uh, it, they're good. There are some really good people there. And most of them, you know, a lot of them are small business owners, and so they understand the ebb and flow of, you know, we need cash flow, we got to hustle here, we got to breathe in here, we can go fat here. It's a good cross-section of, of Alaska's quality people. Can you give us a, a little sample of what these possibility ideas uh, look like? Always. They put it in the bucket, Okay. Uh, yeah, he's, let's go he, interview he, my bucket. There's a lot of things. I mean, none of these matter right now, but they're all very important. Uh, you know, people want to extend the race. They want to change the direction of the race. They want to make it a stage race. They want to uh, get national sponsorships. Easy to say, hard to do. Uh, I want all these things to be considered carefully. You know, I want the public's input on March 1st. And uh, the board is certainly going to play the deciding factor on it. You know, for the first time in like 21 years, I've got bosses. It's kind of, we're all learning about this now. So uh, it's, uh, there's a lot of ideas. I have to be careful because I go down a rabbit hole and then I lose, you know, two days worth of planning time or logistics time. But uh, you spend this much time with the possibility bucket. That's I, why it's for March 1st. March okay. 1st, yeah. I put it out to March 1st because okay. I have so, so many immediate fires. I mean, right I mean, the reality is what it comes down to is it's the money game, you know? And Iron Dog needs money to survive just mm -hmm. like any other event. And those dollars Absolutely. are few and far behind. So I'm sure mm -hmm. that's what, you know, and it sounds like sponsorships are the main way that this thing. Well, yeah. I mean, we're surrounded by awesome people. You know, Donlin Gold, they stepped up. They've been stepping up for years. They sponsor Who, Who's that? Uh, Donlin Gold, they're a mineral extraction company. Okay. And uh, they do amazing things. They sponsor and have sponsored our uh, Donlin Gold Safety Expo. This year it's at the Menard Sports Center. But we have all sorts of folks. I could rattle off my list, but, uh, you know, that'd read like a laundry list. But yeah, it looks like you brought a piece of paper. Northerner Cargo Amsoil Climb, come on. Had to pass, <laughs> monster. I could go on down. <laughs> it's almost too, uh, you know, if... If I had the time, I would read all of them, but I just want to make sure everybody knows that they're amazing sponsors. We're going to promote them and present them as often as possible. The goal for us is to make sure that we follow through on everything we promise. I mean, that's the goal of any promoter, you know. Uh, I really want to set a high mark this year. So when we're looking for sponsors next year, they will say, oh, these are the, this is the group that over-promised. I mean, over-delivered their promises, you know. Uh, but they've been, they've been amazing. And we're, every day we're looking for sponsors. Another way that uh, we are funded is the racer fees. Those guys, they step up. You know, I've had people walk into my office and pull out their checkbook and write $1,000, $5,000, $10,000 checks, and they don't even want the fulfillment. They just want to make sure the race survives. I got a buddy in Washington. He's the snow machiner down there. He sent me 300 bucks cash in an envelope because he just, I mean, that's all he could afford, but that was awesome, you know. 
And then another way we generate funds right now I'm kind of excited about is we do a raffle every year and we donate money to charity for that. Yeah. But I think moving forward, when we think of these like giant events and what's going on, like we have to change the model. You know, it's not simply like, hey, pay us some money and we're going to throw your uh, your logo up. Right. You have to get creative and we have Absolutely. to find new ways to support this. And it's like yeah. very uh, community driven as well. Absolutely. Possibly. Yeah, that's what I keep hearing is you mention all of these local businesses. I mean, how how important is the community of Iron Dog to Iron Dog? I think that we're a tight-knit community. I think that the people who, I mean, you know, the reason the people support this on one level is an emotional thing. You know, they want to maintain this legacy event in Alaska. The other reason is these are pragmatic business people, and they know that if they get their name in front of the people who are buying snow machines or buying land or, you know, buying trailers or whatever it may be, that that's just the perfect demographic that they want to reach. Specifically, as they leave Big Lake and they go up into these smaller communities in rural Alaska, because while they are well-connected and they're very savvy on technology, you know, they it's there's a high density of, you know, uh, technology users out there, but you go through on a Skidoo or a Yamaha or a Polaris or Arctic Cat, and you're you know you're in the lead. Then that right there is a brand awareness component that you just you can't buy that. You know. I mean, so do you get support? Does Iron Dog get support from the big four manufacturers, the Polaris's, the Skidoo's, absolutely Yamahas? You know, absolutely. Um, so uh, we do. Uh, we get uh, either in kind, and sometimes we get cash. Uh, we certainly get. Uh, a reach from the dealers, I mean the the manufacturers, yeah. uh, and it trickles down to the dealers. So hopefully we're giving them business in exchange. Uh, I know that Yamaha. I've had a good conversation with the Yamaha diplomat up here, and we're gonna do all we can to get all four manufacturers back in the race. Uh, but short answer, yeah, those guys do a lot, and where they really support the race is through the racers. I mean these guys, some of these guys get tens of thousands of dollars in, you know. Uh, uh, prototype sleds, yep. you know, and uh, it's amazing. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, they, they build out like $30,000 sleds, don't they, for this race? Because you have to yeah. have... Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah, you either need a wife or a, or a budget. So let me... <laughs> <laughs> They're going to keep you in check. <laughs> I've got neither. Looks like I'm not racing. Oh, you can go to the um, moon, man. Yeah. Shoot the moon. <laughs> um, what, uh, okay, so let me ask you this. Uh, a lot of, it seems like some racers this year switched from Polaris to Ski-Doo, mm-hmm. like four it's... teams. Seems to be a migration in brands. I mean, it always always moves back and forth. I mean, the manufacturers are always trying to improve or experiment. You know, they want to evolve, too. Uh, you know, so one year, product X has great suspension, while product Y has a powerful motor. Uh, I think the racers are trying to stay in front of that trend on one level. So it's technology-driven. I believe so, and it's the support. Yeah. I mean, just as they shift in their technology direction, uh, I think they also shift in their ability or their desire to support. And that the good thing is it's an ebb and flow, and there's four manufacturers, three of them actively participating, and you're going to land somewhere, you know? Yeah. You're going to either land with the support, you're going to land with the evolution of technology. Uh, so it's it's good. Also, when you think about like the snow machine industry in general, it seems like there's been a huge like uh, shift or focus kind of on the backcountry free riding mm-hmm. versus like the racing super mm-hmm. sled. Does that direction play into effect 
for the future of Iron Dog and what Iron Dog's about? You say they're going to dangle down their course next time? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you know well, what I mean? It's like, it seems absolutely. like there's been a shift. Is there any high marking added to the course? <laughs> no. No, there's a couple skid marks there, but I won't go into that. <laughs> uh, so, you know what I think you're hitting on is uh, I think that it has appealed to a broader group, you know, the machines have been able to get off the ice, to get off those, you know, ditch-banging trails. Uh, and it's become, for many, many people, a form of expression, you know, a form of freedom. It's a way to get out to the beyond, you know, instead of just look at the beyond. Now we can indulge ourselves with it. So, you know, keep in mind, the best riders in this race forever are also some of the best riders off the race course. I mean... Not only did they combine the ferocity of, you know, the ferocity of being a top shelf competitor, but they also know how to ride. And so when you're trying to follow one of these guys down the trail, good luck. You're going to eat dust. When you're trying to follow one of these guys up a valley of powder, you're still going to eat dust, you know. So the skill set crosses over, but I think, again, the the general public, the number of people riding these nicer sleds have kind of created a little uh expressionism for sure look i mean look at guys like Corey davis Corey davis is awesome man he's doing i mean he's he's good on the sled he's good in the air he's good on the race course he's good in the backcountry he's just good with a snow machine he is he's a good all-around guy you know the appeal then you know because it's like does this only appeal to people who are very like uh you know dorked out on snowmobiles <laughs> snow machines you know what i mean or is oh, there I is know. there can you is there a broad yeah. appeal because i mean it is really one of the craziest things people could do mm -hmm. you know and i just feel like if it's presented right to people you'd get a lot of people paying attention yeah. to this and you so know? so like is that a media component what is that oh there certainly is uh, some improvements that we need to make for the media coverage it's a very difficult race to cover very yeah fast. but uh i don't Alaska. think uh, <laughs> <laughs> so dorked out no i think it's the difference between uh you know trying to ride secretariat on the race course and trying to herd cattle with that thoroughbred but that is precisely why we have the trail class i mean the pros are gonna go i mean they are they are absolutely a, a hybrid of skill and daring and you know that's what their passion is trail class everybody can do that because really the only governor on that is uh how far you want to push yourself you know i've gone on that trail i've worn down jackets and hats and because it's so dang cold uh, and I've been there in a t-shirt, but, uh, that's why we have a trail class. We're trying to use that as a qualifier or as a, it's a great way to get your feet wet, so to speak. Uh, but just about anybody can do that. Similar to heli skiing, you know, right now it used to be, I mean, before nineties up here, extreme skiing, extreme skiing championships, Valdez. And now the operators many years ago have evolved. So they appeal to a much broader audience and now it's not so intimidating anymore it's just skiing out on mountains without lift served you know so same thing with the trail class and iron dog has yeah. that accessibility lended itself to um something a little bit more dangerous for like for the, for the individual operators yeah the inexperienced oh, yeah. absolutely you know it's just like uh, well you totally understand this skiing you know there's a certain amount of uh dues you got to pay when you're a downhill skier and then snowboard snowboarding came along which is awesome uh but it created a bit of a leap in uh, where you didn't have to kind of you know 
cut your teeth on all these years of learning how to parallel ski and stuff. And so I think there was an accelerated uh, uh, process for snowboarders because they were, you know, I don't know if it's it's easier to learn, I think, but it's just as hard to master. But I think that snowboarding allowed a huge swath of the public to enjoy and experience the mountains. And I think that's what's happened with the technology for the... So are you too. saying that snowboarding oh, don't, don't is... <laughs> Snowboarding's easier than skiing? I think it is more appealing to a broad number of people, especially I, when it started. But uh, I don't think it's any easier to master. Well, okay. here, here's what snowboarding did. is it, it, it told a different story to a different type of people about what this like uh, recreational you know opportunity is you know whereas like um skiing when snowboarding first started was very like alpine racer very elite status well it's what it's what mom and dad did and then the kids who wanted to rebel well, they that, got the snowboard that was part of it you know but i think that's you know it's like snowboarding just kind of took this like skateboarding angle and really like uh told a different story and you know you your identity was different as a snowboarder than it was as a skier and i think that's how it reached but i think people. that 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 ethos i think is is very similar to the way that snow machining started or at least where snow machining went for a little bit where it was just kind of these uh these badasses yeah i agree i mean if you're talking like early snow machine the badasses were you know the people racing the 500 mile races on big lake and stuff mm mm-hmm. Later, those badasses were the Slednecks or the two, two stroke cold smoke guys, you know, um, Giles and Sebastian. Yeah, yeah and guys, you know, yeah. I guess when I this say guy? Sledneck too, I'm not referring to like the actual Sledneck right. like videos. Right. I'm referring to the fact that it's like yeah. a play on redneck. Well, yes. I think that you know, and it's like the we're way all that I heard rednecks. Like, the way that I heard you talk about Sledneck is is definitely not the production company. It is what that word has evolved into culturally. Yeah, you know, who are we as a culture? And I just I don't know if there if there's so much slednecks anymore as it's just this I don't know it's just opened up and changed a little bit. So to switch gears here a little bit, I didn't mean to knock snowboard man. No 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 <laughs> I I uh, I wanted to flesh that out a little bit because yeah. I know you didn't. Yeah, I was skier. Yeah, I and still you am a skier. you also uh, I remember after I did an article for Transworld Snowboarding, we we had this little conversation mm-hmm. about how you had also done an article for them too at one point. Yeah. So yeah. Oh, yeah, no, I know you're not knocking it. Oh yeah. Um. So yeah, switching gears. <laughs> Um, when did you start Coast Magazine and Snowrider? Oh, Coast Magazine and Snowrider. So I started that, uh, started that with a great friend of mine, uh, Nick Coltman. And, uh, that was May 2000. We were at Alyeska Resort and we were, uh, I was going to start a magazine, Go Alaska. He was going to start a publication to marry up with the press. And, uh, there's another gentleman from Canada who was going to start a publication as well. And, uh, a couple of gin and tonics later, we kind of agreed as gentlemen to not be competitors and to be compadres. And so, yeah, we gave birth uh, May 2000 and uh, have been publishing it all the way up until the January or December of last year, uh, monthly, for whatever, 18 years. Um, and I opted to not publish it in the winter. It's getting hard to get the revenue in the winter for a print publication, but... Uh, so I still publish it in the summer now. Uh, Snowrider publishes in the winter, although we're only going to do maybe one or two issues this year, uh, just because I'm not going to have the time right now. 
But yeah, so I had a semi-feral existence as a publisher for about 18, 20 years. You know? <laughs> Just need some pocket change. Semi-feral? Yeah. Semi Is that what you said? Semi-feral? Yeah. What's that mean? Well, I shower weekly. Uh, you uh, know, I forage for my food when the ad times are lean, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm not afraid to eat your snacks. Is that pizza still good? Yeah, you can have okay. some of that pizza, There man. we go. That's yeah, Dustin's pizza master. Right. Yeah, I got a, I got a problem. <laughs> so what was your ultimate goal when you started it? I mean, what was... Mm. You mentioned gin and tonics with Nick Coltman. Mm. I mean, what was that conversation like? Oh, uh, well, it's always a funny conversation when Nick's involved, you know. Uh, some of that stuff we can probably mention. Most of it we can't present on the air. But no, we were having a couple of really good ski days going on there, you know. Oh, this is uncensored. You can say whatever you want. Oh, is that the deal? Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm trying to be a gentleman. Uh, <laughs> but no, conversations, I mean, it it volleyed between the idea bucket, and it's a big bucket there with Nick, uh, and it, you know, we're both kind of idealists. We're pragmatic idealists, you know. We knew that we could knock this thing out of the park, which I felt we did on a lot of issues, um, but we still had to make money at it, you know, for as much as... Uh, a beautiful outlet that writing and photography and adventure magazine producing is you have to make money or it's just a it's just a you know a scheme it's not a plan for your it's life, a passion so. it's a hobby yeah it's not a business well i mean but that's the problem though you have to make sure it's a business you have to make sure you keep your lights on or else you know you can't see to write so uh he brought a lot of that business savvy to it you know i i basically forage for pizza in his apartment too but uh it was great, though. Yeah, we were partners for a few years, and then he sold it to me at an awesome deal, and uh, he focused on the press, and then he got injured, sadly, you know. But uh, And then we've been friends ever since. We've been uh, gentlemanly competitors, but really, you know, if it, if it was a push-and-shove thing, we would both willingly step back and, and uh, you know, proceed fairly. I always had fair dealings with Nick. He's a great guy. And, and is that a um, a symptom not only of friendship, but is that a symptom of, of living in some place as isolated as, as Alaska? Mm, yeah, certainly friends foremost, you know. I think that, you know, uh, a lot of people let passion run their businesses, and you have to have that. You have to be willing to make those sacrifices, you know. I mean, skimp on the food and skimp on the sleep to make your passion a reality. But there's a point. I've lived in this town all my life, and there's only some things I will talk with, you know, certain people I'll talk to, certain things that I'll do, because you know that you're going to live and die in this town. You know, there's certain people you want to be in business with. There's certain directions you want to take with your business, but you got to make sure that it's a tempered decision for the most part. Um, and at least I would like to think for Nick and I, the decisions we made, even when we were competitors, which is kind of a funny word to mention, cause he'll probably smile when he you know, hears this because we really weren't competitive. We're kind of just goofy people going for the same slice of pie. But the fact that we were able to even share secrets about our approaches or, you know, what are you going to charge for this? What are you going to charge for this? I think it elevates the dignity of business when you can be mature and have those discussions with competitors or potential competitors because otherwise you're never going to you're going to operate in a vacuum and you're never going to evolve so mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Ex exactly i mean you mm -hmm. have to have competition competition yeah. is what creates growth yeah you know and it's good and i think that like uh, a good business owner is someone who understands that and knows how to use that that ecosystem to his advantage and to the overall health of their industry's advantage mm -hmm. you know and understanding that that unity 
is is always going to be more beneficial than you know constantly battling yeah because you come down to it and specifically in the in the realm where Nick and I were competitors i mean he's he's not the enemy i'm not the enemy the enemy is going hungry the enemy is not getting enough ad dollars to print the next issue so there's a point where you have to try and carve out you know a larger chunk as you can with that fork but uh but you just also have to realize that that we also need to get back to kind of create that pie, at least give it the ingredients. Because when every issue we publish, we hope that the advertisers that we sold an ad to grows from our words or our stories or our customers visiting them. It's very important, you know. So, yeah, you can't feed, you can't be cannibals to each other, but you can certainly feed off each other in order to move forward. What a, the, the snow machine industry and the big four kind of seems like they're pretty competitive and they mm. can almost be cannibalistic yeah. i mean what do you think about that new engine that polaris came out with it's kind of a straight rip off of ski do you think mm-hmm. or what i mean i don't know if those are the right words to put man <laughs> like i don't want to i don't i don't know dude it's so crazy now snow- it's on the record i know oh, wow well the snow machine industry is so crazy because they they i don't know they seem to kind of all hate each other is that is that correct no, or I don't think that's the case at all. Okay. I think there is a a very focused approach on increasing market share for every manufacturer. I think what they really do share is a desire to pursue and enhance technology in combustion engines and suspensions and seats and whatever. I think they're real uh I think they're real brothers in arms as far as exploring technology. I think they're okay. lions when they come to tackling the market share. And that's okay. That's healthy business. But I, I don't think there's any sort of hate animosity. There's good natured ribbon among every rider you go with. But uh, you know Yeah, it's like it's like I guess it's kinda like friendly like shit talking or something then. Oh, Cause I just time. I just remember talking to like uh my contacts at Ski Do mm-hmm. in Quebec when that when they did their big unveiling of the eight fifty Patriot. Oh. That's a, it's not an eight forty two or eight fifty three. What is that? Yeah, exactly. I know. And well, it's just kind of like, you know, you've got Ski Do, which is this Canadian company, right? And so they release this engine, eight hundred and fifty cc's. It's mm-hmm. this brand new thing. Okay. And then two years later, Polaris Where's does it, out. but they're an American mm-hmm. company mm-hmm. and they call it the eight fifty Patriot. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, hmm, is there mm-hmm. some like subliminal mes- yeah, messaging yeah, yeah. there? I was like, say that subliminal. Like if you're American, you ride the Patriot. No, you know, yeah. unless you ride that Canadian. Oh, it's an <laughs> yeah. evolution from their Liberty Motors, which are awesome motors, you know. So maybe it's just that genre of uh oh, you know, okay. flag waving. So yeah. Okay, cool. All right. I mean which has got it's gotta be some branding there though oh, you're you trying know to appeal. You know I love it. it. I think it's hilarious oh, the competitions. So. And more power to him because we're benefiting from all of that all but of that. Let, uh, let's talk about, you know, growing, you know, they, they fight over market share, but growing that market share. I mean, snow machining hasn't grown really, has it? I yeah. mean, are, are sales blowing up at no, all? No, no. I mean, you look at the trend and certainly based on, I mean, you'd look at Anchorage or Alaska as a microcosm. We had like four years of snowless winters, which was devastating to my friends who were dealers, you know. Uh, but there's a, there are some real bright spots out there, but in general the sales of snow products have declined over the years and uh, how do we reverse that i don't know i mean some of the manufacturers now are coming out with these nice 200 cc sleds which is a good intermediate thing the kitty cats are too small your kids grow out of them you know the 440s are really the 600s now too big but those 200s you know that's the goldilocks of snow machines right now so those transitional age kids are getting a really challenging ride and uh 
we're starting to grow our own riders again, which is very important. Totally. The I, I interviewed this this guy, Brad Stewart, a while back. He's just kind of this um, this multifaceted guy in the snowboard industry. He helped found Nixon Watches, uh, Morrow Snowboards, Bonfire. I mean, he's, he's a very multifaceted individual, mm-hmm. but he's been in the industry for a very long time. And one thing that he told me that has really always kept with me was that Burton is so far ahead in the snowboard game because they've always marketed to the eight-year-old. And you have to because once you have brand recognition by that eight-year-old, that eight-year-old is going to grow up and they are a Burton person for life. Absolutely. And so it kind of sounds like that's what you're talking about with the snow machines. It's like if if these snow machine companies are trying to appeal to a younger and younger generation, mm-hmm. you know, if they grew up on a skidoo, they are going to be a skidoo rider forever. That's it. I mean, you eliminate, you eliminate the gap and there won't be one. And so uh, I, think they're, I think they're doing a good job. I'd like to see more, you know, diverse models, you know, that will accommodate uh, youth riders. Uh, there's some great sleds out there for riders who are not quite as hardcore, you know, whether they're novice men or, or introductory women or whatever. But... Uh, I think they're really trying to do that. It's just expensive. All that technology is expensive. And, you know. It's a commitment. It to, is a to commitment. To do this sport. That's you know? true. Yeah. But, you know, one thing I like is I, I met uh, Dean Ferguson last year, and he does the, um, yeah. with his the group. Lines of the young, the youth races? The youth I races. Kate, that's awesome. It's great. You More know, people I went and saw yeah, it's him. just a, um, a bunch of kids that are like, uh, yeah. they're racing each other. Yeah, yeah I've you seen know, it. Yeah. The, yeah. And it's, it's yeah, great. That's badass. Oh, the parents get to. catching air. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he's teaching them. And so that that's really cool yeah. because Dane is like, he's an old X Games dude, you know? He was the guy who was doing backflips and whatnot, right? And it's just really nice to see someone come back and, and totally. like, oh, it's not just about me trying to be like yeah. super cool. Or who I am. He's giving it back. Oh, he's a farmer for our future right now. Exactly. And that, that, that those kind of things are so important to the survival of these like recreational yeah. industries. Exactly. Yeah. That's how you keep them alive. Yep. So how can the Iron Dog do that? You know, how, how can it be involved with, with the kids and the youth? and Oh, so uh, things that we really try to do is uh, we try to have uh, decorum on the course. I mean, despite being exhausted and, uh, you know. You mean like don't swear in front of kids? Well, stuff, you or? know, that's a pretty big ask for some yeah. of these guys, myself included. <laughs> no, I think there are some most excellent ambassadors in the pro team and the trail team on the board. You know, there's some really good people, so they're conscientious of they could be potential trendsetters. You know, we've had kids race in this race that have had to have waivers from their parents, you know. Oh, so kids they, have raced. Well, I'm talking... 16, you, 17 type. Right, where the, yeah. And so they've had, you know, and they've... I'm mean, like Tyson Johnson, you know. He was a most qualified racer. Uh, yeah, he was, I think, one of the youngest racers to come on there. His dad, Eric, you know. I mean, he wanted them to go, but there were certain age requirements. But uh, I think he's one of the longest-term current racers out there right now but yeah he started as a pup you know uh other things we do we try to support other clubs you know specifically the vintage club is a good one but uh amc alaska motor mushers they are awesome group of people they've been around i was a motor musher back in 1968 i have a snowsuit but uh they a do motor a, musher is that what it's called motor mushers yeah i love it <laughs> amc yeah it's been around for a long time uh but they do an event called the iron pup uh, usually at the start of the iron dog race and and they do a great job. I'm sure we'll see some of there, Dane's. There you go. Yes, I yep. mean, you know, you think about some of these like super races or stuff that takes like some of the best athletes. And the idea is, is to project something onto people that's aspirational, mm-hmm. you know, and can can you see yourself doing this, right? Because that's 
that's something that drives us to buy fifteen thousand dollar sleds and you know put up with you know twenty mile rides in twenty below weather is yeah. because you know maybe I'm going to be able to have that moment where I achieve something personally, right? Yeah, yep. and, and you probably that, that's growth, you know, yeah. for a person. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's it. So yeah, I don't know. Yeah, no, it, it, I think it adds to your identity. I mean, I think that that that's almost like the the ultimate human goal, right? Is like, where do we fit in? Like, what defines me as a human being? And I think that when you have these, uh, these these long arduous journeys, rites of passage. Yeah, rites of passage. I mean, they can be rites of passage, but this one, I think, Iron Dog is is more literal than like metaphorical. Sometimes we're <laughs> just riding. Yeah, <laughs> it's not that much. Not so philosophical, but I understand where you're going. Well, I yeah. think that it could be different for for a lot of people, though. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you you know what's cool too about the Iron Dog is it's something that's unique to Alaska in mm-hmm. our identity, and it kind of really like reflects who we are as a people. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, what, what do you guys, what, what would you think about that as someone who's been involved? You know, how does like the Iron Dog race connect with the Alaskan identity? Oh, I think it is. Uh, I think it is a modern day version of the. Uh, you know, the gold rushers or the true pioneers or the original people, because it does a huge part of the iron dog is mental fortitude and the ability and the confidence to travel through the great unknown and not worry about not making it. I mean, that's not an option because these guys, they get frostbite, they keep going. They lose a ski, they keep going. They throw a track out, they fix it and go on. And I think in Alaska, for millennia, that has been the only possibility for so many people. Whether they're, they have that caliber of character or whether they must proceed to survive. You know? And that's a little overdramatic, but I think Iron Dog Racers embody that spirit. Yeah, it's tougher up here. It is tougher up here. Cold weather, extremes, you know. To close us out here. Oh, boy. Kicker. You talked a lot Briefs. about the possibility bucket. Ah. Where do you put the bad ideas? I don't I don't throw them away. You know, I I want to be a cliche and say there's no bad ideas, but there really are some bad ideas out there. Um I want to say I put them back into the fire and I use that heat to temper the good ones. Because you don't know what a good idea is until you've really made a colossal mistake. And I've got a gang of that in my past. But uh, it's important not to disregard bad ideas. You don't give them the weight of the really good ideas, the obvious good ideas. Those are, you know, those are those don't need any weight assigned to them. But until you've really made the mistakes or you've tried to implement a bad idea, you will never understand the swing of the pendulum. It has to go both ways to find balance, so... Yeah, bad ideas have their place, you know, probably in the fire. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, not the bucket, the fire. Okay, cool. And then if you can give like one message of uh, hope and inspiration here to all the racers, to all the people involved in Iron Ducks, a lot of people are seeing the news and they go, is this thing going to survive? You know, as a person who's now driving the ship forward, what can you tell all these people? Hmm. Wow. I wasn't ready for that pop quiz, but... uh... I can tell you that the people who are intimately and peripherally involved with the Iron Dog really care. I think even if we just fueled this race with their passions, we're going to go way past Fairbanks. But uh, 
it's it's going to be a good year. All the people involved who have stepped up have given me such hope, and I didn't need hope because I knew we were going to do it, and we're really, really way ahead where we thought we were going to be. Uh, I think that the Iron Dog spirit is is as indefatigable as the Alaskan spirit, and that's what's going to carry every one of them across the finish line. Cool. Right on, John. It's perfect. Yeah, yeah community. thanks so much, man. Community, yep. mm-hmm. Thank you for being on the show. I appreciate it. Yep. Thank you guys for having me. You can support local grassroots journalism at patreon.com slash crude magazine. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it's a platform that makes it easy for you to support content that matters to our community for as little as $1 a month. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by Cody Liska and Dustin H. James for Crude Magazine. Intro music was produced by Alcoda Beats.